that kind of different experience was very addictive, right? The fact that you're doing something that nobody else has the privilege of doing. You know, today, day and age, you know, almost like 20 countries in the world I could land and for sure I would have a place to stay, you know? Like, no questions asked, right? You just show up at somebody's door and they open it for you. I guess my biggest learning was to read. I mean, like, in retrospect, like, read a lot more. The nice thing about being in the startup community is that there has already been quite a lot of experiments that's been done. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Charlie Koch is the founder and CEO of Urban Metri, a data company that cleans and analyzes large amounts of city data through its proprietary algorithms. Trained in city planning at MIT, Charlie hopes to help governments, city planners, corporations, and urban dwellers by providing insights into the city with big data. Since it was founded, Urban Metri has provided intelligence to various listed companies and government agencies, including Siami Darby Property, Sunway Property, UEM Sunrise, NASA TDDI, and more. Hi, Charlie. Thank you so much for joining today. I am really excited to get to know you because this is the first time I've ever spoken to you. But based on what I read about you, I'm really, really excited. And I guess to start off for everyone to get to know you a bit better, could you explain a bit about what you do at Urban Metri, maybe in just a few simple words for all of us to understand? Because for me, the first time I read about it, I was a bit confused. <laughs> okay, so uh, in a couple of words, I think uh, Urban Metri is a city data company. So we harvest, think of it as a uh platform or database that we collect all the nitty-gritty information about the city from your roads to where the housing is from where the shopping malls are to what kind of food you eat what kind of new coffee shops are popping up so all those things that's in your headspace when you think about those kind of like nitty-gritty stuff that you have it in your head we digitize it right so we have a digital version of uh folks experience of the city Okay, so this is like a more leveled up version of Google Maps, right? Because I think Google Maps isn't actually that accurate. So Google Maps is very interesting because it attempts to do that, right? But then there are a lot of like nuances and flavors across your city that you feel like you can only get through by experiencing it. The food that you eat, uh, the people that you meet, where do certain people go, where do the young people go, those are all not very transparent. So it's not so much about accuracy, but about layers, right? Layers and flavors and depth of the city, right? Uh, so just that's where Urban Metry is championing where we are basically extracting or digitizing the experiential part of the city because that's where the value lies. And I guess onto a little bit about yourself. I wonder what your personal life was in terms of when you grew up. What was your childhood like? Mm, I think uh, that's a very interesting question. So a lot of times when uh, folks Asked me in my capacity as CEO of Urban Metri, um, I start that journey like when I started the company, right? So, you know, 2014, 2015, we started the company. But so my childhood, I, I was actually uh, born and raised in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur. I grew up uh, inside a middle class uh, family and I was eldest daughter of two. Um, so growing up, I went to public school. So I went to the Malaysian version, which is up to high school, our Sekolah Menengah, we call it, right? So then after that, I took my SPM. And uh, from then on, because I was uh, originating from a middle-class uh, family, the only way I could really move up uh, my exposure to the world and then to, to study abroad is really to get scholarships. So I studied my ass off and, uh, sorry, got my first scholarship to India. So I went to India for two years, which is my IB. I think 
you know, most people nowadays are familiar with the idea of IB. When I went to IB, nobody knew what the IB was. Uh, so two years of IB at Mahindra United World College, one of the best, uh, most dramatic two years of my life. Then from India, uh, two years in India, I got another scholarship to Middlebury in the US. So Vermont, fantastic place. If you ever have a chance or have gotten into Middlebury, take it. Best college you could you could ask for. So it's liberal arts. I did my physics and my architecture major at Millbury. So I'm one of those people who, in a way, greedy. So, you know, the scholarship was a, a, a big blessing, right? And, you know, I was uh, sponsored by Shelby Davis, who's a philanthropist my entire journey in uh, Millbury. And because he paid for everything, including the clothes on my back, I wanted to get the most out of it, so I had a double major, which was a bit extra because one of it was a physics, you know, major. Um, I was but, thinking the same when I read your <laughs> your LinkedIn. <laughs> you know, I I was greedy, right? I just wanted to do, to do as much as I can, you know, given the opportunity. So as a result of that, and you know, I had the best education, right, at Millbury. Then again, building from the experience, I got a scholarship to MIT. At MIT, based on the guidance of my mentors, and you know, you're a bit lost at that kind of like time. You might be doing well, but you're still sort of like trying to figure out what you want to do in life, right? And um, so my professor recommended, based on my characteristics, to do a degree in urban planning. So uh, I got into the Department of Urban Planning and Studies in uh, MIT uh, on a full scholarship, and so that's where I went. That's back. Almost, almost twenty years ago. So it's been a while. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that was my education. Then from then on, instead of staying in the US, uh, worked a little bit, but then came back eventually to Southeast Asia because I'm generally that person who likes the unbeaten, the path of the less taken. Right. So I like that. And uh, so coming back to Southeast Asia was part of that journey. But I mean, it also helps that I was married by then. So, and uh, my husband was here. So, so I had to come back. So, but it was a, it was a very, very long and a very interesting journey. And before I came back to Southeast Asia and decided to build my career here. Do you remember like what your childhood was like, like middle school or grade school, you, what were you into back then? To be very honest, I think uh, my English wasn't even fluent up until I was, maybe 13. My dad was a, a business person and my mom was an administration clerk in a solo company. So very sort of middle-class Chinese family, right? And I distinctly remember being extremely proud of my dad because of, or, or I had this admiration because my dad was super active, he was that guy who played tennis every Wednesday and went diving, you know, like in some deserted island with his friends, like every other month. So the distinct memories I had was my dad used to take us camping and diving uh, when I was very young. So like seven, maybe seven, six, seven. We would take a very dangerous fishing boat in the east coast of Malaysia to go diving and fishing with my dad for like 10 days and it would be no resort no water you are there for like 10 days and you just sort of like waddle around uh, and play but there's no sort of resort there's no pool there's there's no water right we have to go and like bring our own water uh, that sort of experience so that was a very big part of my childhood do you remember what kind of business your dad ran? Um, did you admire him for the sort of colorful, like vivid life he led outside of work? Or was it also because of the kind of person he was at work or how he... So I didn't know business? much about what he did at work, honestly. I just, you know, mm -hmm. when teachers asked, you say, oh, my dad does business. I have honestly, at that time, no interest, right? The, the time as a kid, you remember, is really the time you spend with your dad on holidays and on... Uh, you know, generally like the the fun stuff outside of of work, right? And and I remember um, it was very interesting because my childhood was so different from my friends who are very sheltered. You know, out in the sun, they're not like you know uh doing. 
things that nobody else is doing, right? And and I think I distinctly remember that was something I was very proud of and like the fact that I was very different and maybe that kind of different experience was very addictive, right? The fact that you're doing something that nobody else has the privilege of doing, even though it's not, it's not like the rich can do and I cannot do, but it's something that's just that you're willing to do or you're willing to open to music. And maybe that kind of shaped my tendencies, right? To, to choose the things that are hard to do. And do you have like fond memories of your mom? Did she go on these trips with you or did she have another sort of kind of influence on you? Yeah, so uh, definitely my mom was there during these trips and my mom is a distinctly quite a tiger mom. So, you know, the whole sort of like get your grades up and make sure you, you do it well. And, you know, it's very typical Asian mom cares about your academics, right? But um, another very big figure in my life and my childhood was my grandmother. So my grandmother um, was this very amazing lady who had eight kids, right? And uh, my dad was uh, one of the younger ones. And, uh, but she stayed with me during my childhood. So she, she literally raised us. She was actually born from a very wealthy family in China. And she came to marry my grandfather here in Malaysia. Um, but her resilience was ridiculous. Like she would be able to do everything in the household herself, no complaints. And she does everything for everybody. And uh, despite the fact that when she grew up, she had a servant who was just like following her around until she got married. It's like that kind of upbringing. But since marrying my grandfather she was able to sort of like take on a lot of hardship she was at one point a, a washerwoman right for other people and and I think that kind of resilience and watching her being so sort of like adaptable like to society was was a big part of, of how I grew up and then I was wondering you mentioned earlier that um, for a middle-class family in Malaysia the, the way to move up would be to get a scholarship to better universities or better schools. Where did you get the idea? Was that something that a lot of people were doing? Or was that something your family influenced you to think about? Uh, yeah, so I had a, a cousin sister. So I was uh, quite fortunate, actually. So my my cousin sister was a big part of my childhood. She stayed with my family. And uh, she was, of course, also in my sort of like social economic class, right? And uh, one of the first things was when she graduated from high school, there wasn't any resources to send her overseas, right? Uh, so, but she wanted it. And so out of various, at that time, you still had newspapers, uh, you know, yeah. flights, right? So one of the clippings I think my mom got for her was to apply to these scholarships. And uh, well, she did very well. She's actually a professor now in Princeton. So I guess I had the privilege of following her footsteps, right? Like, and, and were able to see that success in her and just, I guess, monkey see, monkey do. <laughs> and and <laughs> follow her path uh, to something. I mean, we differed a lot uh, in our perspective. And I think she might be a little bit more conservative than me because of her circumstances versus mine. But still, you know, she, she was a, a big part of that possibility, you know, to think beyond your current circumstances, right? And then you were able to make it to UWC. I'm not sure how well known it was back then, but I think when I was finishing up high school, I heard that UWC was one of the best places to, to study and take the IV. In, in Singapore? But uh, for I think at, at my time, uh, UWC was already a very prestigious scholarship. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us applied. But the amazing thing about UWC was, and I just had this conversation last night, and everybody was like, how many A's do you get for your like high school exam, right? And honestly, I could hardly remember, but I remember I didn't get straight A's, right? So I didn't get straight A's. I went to the UWC interview, and everybody in my room who was shortlisted had straight A's. And I remember thinking that I was already coming in a notch down, right? But the nice thing about UWC was they didn't really, like they weren't like solely judging you on your academics, right? So there was a lot of leadership, there was a lot of potential, there was a lot of 
sort of curiosity about the world that they they value. So I had a chance there because of, I guess, my upbringing and how I I tend to be a little bit more of a challenger as a as a, as a, as a as a character. And so I think UWC was able to see you know the value in people who see things differently and not in a in a mold, right? And 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 that was a very big part of this entrepreneur journey that I am in, uh, where you can't be an entrepreneur if you want to do things exactly the same, right? Or you want to just follow the system. Because the innovation part of it needs to come in. I think maybe what you mean is like maybe a lot of the other applicants weren't that different. I think as you mentioned, like your child is very different. You had very different experiences. Meanwhile, maybe a lot of them were very similar profiles. Maybe they all had straight A's. They all knew how to play two instruments. Meanwhile, <laughs> you would have a different experience. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what did you see? That, and then these are the things that maybe you see on the surface. But there are a lot of things about your character that comes out in conversations, in, mm-hmm. in, in your values and beliefs. I think like fundamentally, that's what people are, right? UWC's whole thing is about like seeking the next leader for communities, for societies, right? So that's, that's really what they are going after. So academic is like one way of, of, of sussing out how intelligent this person is, right? But there are other ways, like emotional intelligence and things like that that, 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 that uh, comes out in interviews and, and how people set themselves or communicate their values and beliefs. And then when you made it um, you know, to UWC, what was it like there? Did you get to go outside of the campus a lot? Was it a really vivid um, school life? I think you also said, I forgot if you said the word chaotic or something else to describe your two years there. <laughs> dramatic. 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 Yeah. Dramatic. So um, back at my time, so I'm, I'm feeling so old with this interview, but back in my time, okay, uh, Mahindra UWC was a little bit of a, a loose cage. So we could do quite a lot that today, if you go to Mahindra, also I've heard you're not allowed to do anymore because of people like us. Uh, so we used to travel, I think three times a year across India and you go unsupervised. So, oh, really? Yeah. So we would, So I remember first two trips I went, it was with like a, a group of like maybe like eight to 10 people half boys, half girls. And we were like 16 to 19, right? Unthinkable today. Uh, yes. Not very sure if I'll allow my, my own daughters to go. But crazy. Uh, so we would travel to like Gujarat, to Udaipur, to Jaipur, you know, these really cool places. I remember one time we went all the way to see the Taj from Pune, where the school was. And uh, the whole bet we had with like another team. So there's two groups of people going to the Taj. And we were going to meet there to see the Taj together. But it was a competition to see who can spend less money to get there. (laughs) So it was ridiculous because our team, led by yours truly, decided to go onto the train like all the other Indians and not pay a fare. So we went... And we started walking. It was a 48-hour train ride. And we started walking from, keep evading the guy who's checking the tickets, like from the top of the train to the back of the train and back in our backpack. So it was ridiculous. Like we did stu- silly things like that. It was funny now, not so funny then, but fun. One time that we had like a one month or this winter, I think, two other girls went with me and we went all the way to Darjeeling, which is uh, north east northeast and you can see the Himalayas so I wanted to see the Himalayas and uh, we went all the way there very very dangerous trip yeah three girls alone three 18 year old girls we oh, were, yes, on top of we were <laughs> who are clearly foreigners <laughs> yeah, we're clearly foreigners right clearly foreigners so I was I, I went with a Jamaican another Jamaican lady who was also clearly a foreigner um and another uh Indian lady, but didn't and it did it didn't go well <laughs> for most <laughs> but memorable times. Uh so we got our money stolen quite a lot, almost all our money, and we had no money to come back from the north. And it, it was it was really funny because now we laugh about it, but it was it was not funny when we were there. Uh <laughs> we had no money for hotels and no money for food. Uh, I remember telling my Jamaican 
good friend who's now a professor, a, a very prestigious professor in math in one of the, the best universities or colleges in the US. I told her, you know, are you hungry? Drink water. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the train ride where you avoid paying, well, avoided paying is the practice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was that, that was memorable. I mean, it's funny now, not so funny then. But uh, yeah, so we had very dramatic days, uh, very good experience. But you build lifelong relationships that, you know, today, day and age, you know, almost like 20 countries in the world, I could land and for sure I will have a place to stay, you know, like no questions asked, right? You just show up at somebody's door and open it for you. So it's UWC was amazing. Right. So if you ever get the chance, just go, right? Yeah. And then when you went to Middlebury, why did you take architecture and physics? Like I think the physics, maybe that was your main goal. And then (laughs) you added architecture, or was it the opposite? Architecture was your main thing, and then you wanted to do something else. Then you happened to choose. I'm not sure if you um, are familiar with the liberal arts education. So the liberal arts education is very interesting. Its goal is to educate the human or like this being this individual into a well-rounded well-exposed individual right so you're not really expected to be an expert right you're you're expected to be exposed right so we coming from an asian background we're like no you know we need to like check this off our list of getting our degree or whatever as fast as possible or whatever it is right so when i arrived at millbury i had enough credits to almost graduate already in physics right because i mean maybe another year or two uh of of so we skipped a lot of the classes because uh we did them in high school or we did them back here in malaysia so we didn't have to do an, an most of the basic physics classes right so when when we when i went I had a lot more room in my calendar to take up other subjects, right? So, and, and generally people would go like, oh, I'll just take another econ, economics, right? Yeah. I mean, you're a banker, you know, whatever. But uh, I was curious. So I went to, to sit in some English classes, you know, because my English was pretty poor. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, architecture classes. I took my first design class in Millbury and I was hooked I was hooked like an addict, right? So every day I was just spending, what, 12, 14 hours at the studio drawing, designing, just addicted to the whole thing. And then I, when I got that, that design poison in my blood, I couldn't stop. So I ended up, and since I had, you know, the capacity in my calendar, so I just, I just took the double degree. Uh, the, the tough part was that both degrees required a thesis. So I was, I think the only... On one of the only people in my my class who had to do a double thesis, I had to do one my junior year and one my senior year because it's impossible to do both theses in in the same year. So uh, I did my physics thesis and my junior year, and then my architecture thesis in my senior year. And why did you choose physics in the first place? So physics is interesting because I was really good at it until. I would say like the middle level, like so when, when you're intermediate, I was very, very good. Mechanics, electromechanics, uh, even quantum, I was okay. So I could pass all the tests, I could get good scores. And I love physics in the sense that I love the brilliance of it. So it's like one of those things that you just, you, you're just smart enough to figure it out, right? There's this like really mysterious thing in the universe and you, this, this person like, I don't know, figure it out, right? But deep down, I knew I wasn't that guy. I wasn't that smart. <laughs> I wasn't so smart that I could be like Oppenheimer, right? I I, I wasn't, mm-hmm. right? So there was a clear difference between people like me um, and the next level, which is like junior physicists was like not, you know, they, 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 they weren't even very good at math. I was very good at math. But there was another level, which was just like, there's this leap of, I don't know, spark of brilliance that sometimes it takes years for people to like jump. Um, and um, I wasn't it, but I admired it. I could understand their brilliance and, and admire it, but I couldn't, I couldn't be that guy. Uh, and so going for a PhD in physics wasn't going to go well for me. Like, I would just feel very disappointed in life, I felt. Uh, because you, you really do need that genius to do it. 
And then how did architecture come in? Was it just because of the design class? Because um, I'm not sure it was middle back then. Yeah, yeah, I got. But were there other options with like the design courses, or is it only architecture? So I do art. You know, a part of the architecture, the part of get, graduating as an architecture major, you had to do art classes. You had to do all kinds of art stuff, art history. So I know my Monets and my Caravaggios very well because you have to. So don't go to a museum with me because I'm a pain. I know the paintings, right? Um, Why would it be a pain though? Isn't it the opposite? Wouldn't it be the best thing because you know all the paintings? <laughs> have, you, have, have you gone to a museum with us? It's showing is painful. They <laughs> know it all. Like they know everything, right? And they're like, oh, <laughs> this lighting is amazing, or like you know, this is the the Vatican commissioned. I don't know whatever. Like so. It's annoying. I I know that I'm annoying. So most of the time, I try to go to museums myself because otherwise, I would just annoy anybody who goes with me. My husband won't go with me anymore. Uh, <laughs> just gave up on me. It's like no, I'm not. I'm not going to another European museum with you. It's annoying when somebody's you're just trying to enjoy the painting, and this other person is telling you the entire history of like how this was painted, who painted it, and why painted this concept of like whatever. It just it, it drives people crazy. So. Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> and then, how did you get to MIT? I I think you mentioned earlier you were advised um yeah to so take an I, urban I, planning major. Mm-hmm. Was very very fortunate. One of my professors, my architecture professor, was a key part of my development. Right, I think he might not even remember my name anymore. Well, one of the key people in my life, and he he basically told me. That I would do very badly as an architect, primarily because I have a I, I I care a lot about people and the uh, use of spaces and and the soft stuff. Uh, where else the current or like the real architecture world is very egotistical, which means that it's all about an art form. It's like you know building a fancy building that's like warped or the shape of the building, and I didn't care much about those things. I care about the people who use the building and how they're using it, why they're using it, and and that sort of thing. So he says I was most suitable as an urban planner. In fact, he 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 was the one who wrote my application to MIT because I was going to come out and work and after studying for so many years. But he initiated that application and I got the scholarship. So forever thankful, and it was very rewarding to know that some professor was invested enough in me and my future to. To even you know go go out of his way to make the application for me, right? So yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And what was your experience like there? Were there a lot of Malaysians at MIT back then, or were you one of the first few? There wasn't many. I was also in the master's program, to be honest. So it was a two-year program. I wasn't in the sort of like the undergraduate where most of the people do their friends. A lot of people mm-hmm. in my class was actually practitioners so there was a lot of people who are already doing urban planning or they are already working in a local council i met a lot of singaporeans <laughs> not that many malaysians a lot of the malaysians are in harvard it was very weird oh okay <laughs> yeah I, a lot of malaysians in harvard i have no idea why but they were all there and mit side it was a few very few in fact, I didn't have any MIT Malaysian friends. Most of them are like Latin Americans or Americans or Europeans. Well, if you were suggested to do urban planning by your professor, um, when you got into the program, do you think you were excited about it already in the same way you are now? Or was it something that grew up on you? No, honestly, when I joined, right, I have very little idea like what it actually does. Like, I mean, I do like, on a very superficial level, but the depth was very surprising. So there was a lot of aspects of urban planning that was beyond the surface, like where you put your roads and where you put your school and stuff like that, right? Which is reflected in urban metries work, right? There's a lot of politics, mm-hmm. a lot of power play in mapping out who actually has the power to decide what to build. Like things like that, you don't think about it, right? You're thinking, oh yeah, the MP or like are my local government guys who are the ones who are deciding. But really who, right? Is it uh the banks? You think, hey, the banks. The banks have a lot of power. Why? Because they determine what they finance to get built. If they don't finance, right. nothing gets built. 
if you think about it, right? Or even if they don't want to finance your housing, if today your housing interest rates goes up, housing supply will drop. And nobody thinks about that, right? That that is reflected in the real world, right? The real assets. And I think that's where I really got an education on how our human the human social system works, right? Like, like how the power play is and what's the structure and the, and the uh, infrastructure of our social hierarchies. So that was fascinating uh, because it translates to the real world. It translates to your roads, it translates to your cars, it translates to your housing, it translates to your schools, public transport funding. All those things is a, is a function of the people who live in it, right? And, and, and that was fascinating, yeah. And then when you graduated um, from MIT, what did you have in mind um, for your career or your future? When I finished in MIT, I was like, obviously, brown eye, bushy tail, right? Very eager. And then I thought, you know, and I was also already married. So coming back to Southeast Asia was uh, was going to be part of the plan anyway, despite I was researching and stuff like that for some of the MIT professors. But I think uh, when I came back here, it was an entirely different environment as well. So obviously, the establishments uh, of a developed country like the US is completely absent here, right? So there was a little bit of like a, almost like travel back in time, you know, like all this progress and all these good ideas, and then it's like, you come back here, you're like, oh, oh, I'm like set back like 30 years or like 20 years, which I thought it was interesting because the way I saw it was like, it's an opportunity. Uh, where else in the developed countries, there's almost too much competition for people like me. Uh, where else when I come back to Southeast Asia, there's a void. And uh, we are able to deliver things that people are not able to. So there are actually a lot of companies like Urban Metry all over the world, but very few of them dare to start in developing countries. Why do you think they don't really start in developing countries? Is it more complicated or is there just less demand for their services? Mm, definitely not less demand. It is just higher investment and higher uncertainty, right? So you don't have a sure bet, right? Because the things is, uh, cities are so complex, right? So familiarity, the, the barrier is very high. The barrier to entry is very high. And uh, not many people are resilient or patient enough to 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 bridge that barrier, right? And then when you started Urban Metry, what sort of kickstarted everything? What made you say, um, you know, I'll start with this idea now? Were you thinking about the idea for a long time before you got started? Honestly, it was a bit of a overreaction towards frustration, right? So I worked for the big Soren funds here in Malaysia for a while, and then I worked for the government, and I also worked for private sectors, right? And I was just very frustrated by how decision-making was made. It was very anecdotal. You know, these are really big decisions, right? And this is a bunch of key stakeholders are just sort of guessing based on their experience, right? They're, they're not really for, they're just iterating from past experience, but not, I mean, in their head. And, you know, there's so much risk. What if this person did it wrong? What if there's hurt mentality? What if, you know, all this stuff? And it was very difficult to leverage on objective decision, logical decision-making. So that's why for some time, the listed companies had a lot of difficulty because they have risk committees and they had like all this sort of like checks and balances. But a lot of the decision-making was still very anecdotal. I didn't like that because it was very frustrating. So I decided that a lot of times they are not using the data because the data is not available in time. So I decided that I would be the person like to provide this data so then nobody has an excuse that there is no data. That's why we are the, the only tool we have is just experience, you know. And 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 I, I don't think that's acceptable uh in this day and age. So you mentioned that they would make a lot of decisions based on anecdotal, I don't know, data experiences. What kind of decisions would they be? Would it be like um how big should we make the road? Or is it something? How should we put houses to, should we build? What's affordable housing? What is affordable? Is it 100,000, 200,000, 300,000? It's a, it's a finger in the air kind of situation, you know? Uh, nobody's really scientifically calculating what is really affordable. 
to sustain a dignified life of a uh, a person working in the city, right? And whether home ownership is really the way to go in order to build ownership, in order to build like a sense of safety, a sense of like quality of life in a city, nobody's really doing any of that. It's all just like, I as a politician went down to talk to this person who's selling rice by the side of the road and the poor person can't even afford rent. Maybe he sh- I should build her a house with government money to house her. Nobody's really talking about, is that really what's going to help her up the social economic ladder? Nobody was really thinking of it in a data way and how many people is it being impacted by this kind of decisions, right? So that's what I mean. Right. And then, like, I guess if you ask her about her income and what she does, like, even if you give her a free house, there's also, like, additional costs for the house. Mm. Um, yeah. and all these other things that might also be factored in yeah and then they, then they start drowning in debt yeah because, because they have to like <laughs> you know oh the guy doesn't have a house let's build her one it's like giving people free expenses to add on <laughs> if I mean, you put the house really far away from the workplace too maybe yeah people still talk about it i mean like just the general mentality of how the system needs to be fixed right not not the not a one-time thing. Like there, there's something wrong with the inefficiencies that we need to deal with. So, if if it's possible, could you walk us through the process of making a decision with maybe a sample client of yours? How would um, what Urban Metry does help make them make a better decision? What do you provide? And how yeah, so, does that change so, the so prior to Urban Metry's existence. Or even now, some of our clients, maybe they use it for different different things. But the, the most value we bring to the table is we now could accurately calculate for our clients trends and also absorption rates. So we will know the, the demand parameters of different types of housing, different prices of housing, different uh, types of real estate, where, when, how, right? And with that information, uh, they can then strategize around what to build, when to build, how to build. Before this, that number of, is it 100 units that people buy a year? Or is it like 200? Or is it 500? Nobody nobody counted it, right? So nobody knows. And, and you know, the difficulty of recruiting buyers is, is sort of just, they thought it was just a function of marketing dollars, right? But actually, there's finite number of people who will actually need a house over their heads. Or there's finite amount of money in the bank for you to borrow, right? For housing purposes. So stuff like that, um, you would think that they would do, but the data is not available previously. So it was very difficult for them. And by the time they need to make a decision, the data is not available. So they have to make one without it. Right. Because maybe before they even build maybe a property development of like maybe a village of people with maybe a hundred houses, they still first have to decide how big are each, how big is each house, um, how how tall maybe they can be. Maybe there's also if they would even move, would these villagers even move to your housing? What if they said that right. this is like where you know my grandparents have set the first house as love sentimental value will never move, right? We'll just renovate it to add two more rooms and I'll never move to your fancy new thing, right? And who are you building for? So knowing the demand, not just by calculating this house I built and then they will definitely buy my thing. You do really need to be a bit more efficient around like understanding the consumer sentiment and what they really require before you you interfere, right? You're interfering and you're providing it. Because the thing about housing and things that you build in the city is not like you can dispose it very easily. It's like physically there forever and ever right so if nobody wants it it becomes this white elephant that nobody stays in it's empty you know you'll see a lot of that in empty malls like now in uh, the US previously there was a demand for this uh, big box neighborhood malls in like all parts of the US they're all dead now there's so many empty malls no retailers right because there was a trend but at least they had demand before and they just sort of died the demand died but not quantifying that demand before you build seems more like a crime than anything when you're you're building something new. So 
something like urban metry would be useful even before the property developer buys the land for the development, right? Right. right. So right. they can use it to plan to know what property to buy, like which land to buy to build um the houses. Yeah, well. so it's more like uh it's sometimes it's there's a lot of levers, right? Sometimes it's pricing. So yeah, I'm interested in this piece of land, it's pretty good, but do I want to pay that much for it? Because I might not get the same yield or if I pay that much for it, I'm pricing my products out of the market. People cannot buy, they cannot afford, you know, that, that sort of thing. So you, you do need to uh, get them to be a bit more rational because some of these decisions are like four or five years into the future. You're making a lot of assumptions around four to right. five years into the future because you're not when you from buying the land to you actually finish a house or finish a mall is minimum three to four years. So you do need to be as accurate as possible when you're making those decisions. So then it doesn't snowball. The, the problem doesn't snowball to this thing that you, you cannot handle, right? So I think the part earlier sort of explained the role of urban metric and this sort of maybe the land acquisition phase or when you're designing what kind of property you want to build. But I think I also read that it's sort of an end-to-end solution. Sometimes you guys also come in before the product launch. What kind of help does Urban Metry give in terms of like the data you provide that helps them maybe with the product launch? Is it with the kind of marketing they will? Oh, no. Do? So we don't, we don't touch any of the marketing side. So we usually come in before they design. So okay. we calculate like is the demand for two car parks, three car parks, you know, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, what quality. Uh, and then we generally, generally, uh, architects really like us because when we have sorted this out with the client, they can dive in and do um, the design well, right? Because they already have specs. They already have, this is what, you know, I need to do. Where else, uh, before we exist, a lot of times the client is still undecisive. So they will see the, the architect, architect say, yeah, you know, you previously said three bedroom, two bathroom. They see the plan and then they go like, oh, Maybe we should add another bedroom. Oh, we maybe we should make the living room bigger because maybe I want. Now the architect has to do it again. He's <laughs> like, I just spent two months on this and then I have to redo it. And you know, it's time. It's inefficient because the the, right. client, the client is not the client's guessing, right? He's he doesn't have data to back up why does he want another bedroom? Why does he need? I don't know, balcony or this size balcony. Is it because his boss saw an apartment and he really likes it? And that's usually that's what happens. The, the, the boss goes to some friend's house and says, like, Oh, this is a fantastic balcony. I have a new development. Maybe I'll enlarge my balcony. That's it. And it's like all over again, you redo the whole thing, right? So it's high. And maybe the architect isn't even paid extra. <laughs> they are not. So they hate it, right? They hate this sort of like indecisiveness because you keep doing it over and over and over again and sometimes to what end right very inefficient and at the end you know what's the worst one when the client uh previous client left a company and a new person comes into the job and he wants the entire thing redone because it's not based on data it's based on the experience of the guy right what he thinks is yeah important or whatever so architects hate it right and since uh, we are around, they, 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 it just helps, right? I'm not saying that we solve all their problems. But now the conversation is more like, should I have black color tiles or marble tiles or whatever? Like the, the aesthetic stuff, right? But at least you don't have to like, let's add another bedroom for no reason <laughs> other than I went to see somebody's house last week, right? So yeah, stuff like that. What is it like to be you at work, especially when you're starting out? Now or when I first started out? When you first started out, what was it like at work? Were you just one person or did you start as a team already? So I had a couple of friends who who decided to, to start this thing with us. Um, and uh, the long story short was that I I was moving at a different pace, right? And they they saw it a little bit more of like a side thing. So eventually, we had honest. Con- I'm 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 one of those people who are not very afraid of confrontation. So if there's an elephant in the room, I I chase it out. I I, I flag it out and it's like let's get over it, right? So I don't skirt around problems. 
often because it's just uncomfortable. So in the beginning, there was a few, then became one. Then when uh, I decided to take it seriously uh, after being one, then I started recruiting people, started raising money, started all kinds of different experiments, I think. And it, was, it wasn't easy, right? It wasn't always easy. Uh, I was learning to be an entrepreneur. I was learning how to navigate the groping in the dark kind of like feeling. But of course, all to a good end. But, you know, that's part of it. Especially if you came from a, a good pedigree of qualifications, Generally, people will choose a, a, a smoother... I still get questions today. Why didn't you just work for a big corporate or MNC or... I mean, you know, I was already working for Sornwell Fund, you know. A lot of people... That's, that's the easiest sort of like way to sort of like attach your your involvement in society. But being an entrepreneur is hard. Yeah. And where did you learn how to build your business and... Things like raising money. Did you learn it from friends? Did you search it? Uh, anyone else influence you? No, man. Just be very thick skin. Just try. It will never work uh, the first time. Try again. And just you just have to be... I mean, all those things that you mentioned is, of course, like manners in which you can learn how to do um, what we do. But... A lot of it is also like skill and ex like it's it's practice, right? Like, and so the first few times you do it, there's no magic way. It's just you just need to learn how to do it like uh over time. Did you have any people around you who already knew how to, for example, raise money or grow a startup? Nope. It was so what were the biggest learning experiences you had? <laughs> <laughs> I guess my biggest learning was to read. I mean, like in retrospect, like read a lot more. There are a lot of people. The nice thing about being in the startup community is that there has already been quite a lot of experiments that's been done. And I think it's always cheaper to read about, is to learn about these experiments by reading them than actually doing them and failing, right? So if you can accumulate as much of those experiments in your head and iterate it and download, basically like training data, like, you know, and it's like LLM, right? If you there was already a base model, why would you not use it and build on top of it? Uh, why would you start from scratch? It's just silly, right? Uh, but I think a lot of people who are maybe very smart, they tend to feel like, oh, I, 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 I'm, I'm very clever. I can start my own. I don't have to, you know work based on other people's base model and I know better or whatever, right? And uh, I think that's a mistake. As cheaply and efficiently as possible, get yourself up to a a base level and then build from there. And then apart from that, like what was the biggest mistake that maybe you made in the earlier days of starting Urban Metri? Don't do what other people do. I think... uh. When we first started, we we saw like a lot of people were like, oh, B2C company, you need to like burn money, acquire user, have the hockey stick, like all this like sort of like very generalized, very celebrated stuff in the media. They are put out there for a purpose, right? So certain people have certain intentions behind those messages. And uh, if the silver bullet works, no one will have a failed startup, right? Uh, so I think just just don't take things as such like a surface sort of like just do this. A lot of entrepreneurship is resilience. You you need to learn how to fail safely so then you can keep running the experiment to the point that you succeed. I think that's something that people don't realize. You need to experiment as fast as cheaply and as economically as possible to the point where you hit at least product market fit and then virality. You need to be very smart about your resources. So no hockey stick, no, you know, one thing that it, it doesn't exist and it changes all the time anyway. So the idea here is to survive, to play another day. Yeah. 
Do you remember a time where maybe you faced the biggest problem at Urban Metri or a time where you felt the most demotivated? Was mm. there any time like that? My first, first, first launch this very, very long time ago, maybe 2015, uh, 16, first product launch. We, we had a studio, there's like four people, I outsourced the development to somebody else. Da, 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 da. Everybody say, oh yeah, this thing works, you know, you you, you had some money, you paid this, because I'm not tech, so I can't code, right? So we had to outsource the coding to, to some other people. And uh, the guy was like, you know, promising sky and the moon, blah, blah, blah. The day of the launch, the app didn't work. And I was quite sick. So, but it's not sick enough to not show up. So I was I was still in the office. Then my elder daughter, that time she was two or three, three, maybe three. Uh, and she caught the bug from me. And she ended up being in the hospital. So I was sort of like, so I had a baby. I had a baby. Uh, who was like less than nine year old. Then I had my older daughter who was in the hospital. And then I had this product launch all at the same time, right? And you were sick too. And I was sick, but you know, there was at least all my problems at that point. Anyway, so I was running between the hospital where my daughter was admitted on the phone trying to get this thing launched and completely neglected my daughter who was being breastfed, right? So I think that was when she turned to formula. So I, I, I switched her to powder because I didn't have any other options, right? Because I was just dying. And the, the treatment didn't work with my daughter. So she had to go through antibiotics and like just a few rounds. And to a point, the doctor was like, if I give her this antibiotics, there's nothing after this, nothing else will work. This is it, right? So it was very stressful. And at the same time, we launched this product, right? And honestly, that product is like version 0.1. That today, I don't think anybody cares and nobody remembers and like that sort of thing, right? So at that time, it was all very important because I spent so much money on the thing. And anyway, so the long story short was she got better. She got better. Uh, product was launched. Not a lot of traction, but it didn't die. It was okay. But when the thing was over, I felt really sick. So I was warded. I was warded. I had just completely... Uh, infection and like some sort of viral thing. Uh, and my sister, my younger sister, was also an entrepreneur. She runs a baking business, so she's a pastry chef, right? And she is as extreme as I am, and also you know working her ass off and stuff like that. And so she got sick too. So both of us, because we were like working so hard, uh, we ended up being warded into into those hospitals, <laughs> and uh. Two of us was next to each other, and they had one of those like hotel rooms with the door. You know, like you know that you can open the door and you like yeah, yeah, in between the rooms. So we had two hospital rooms connected by the door, and both of us were so sick. We ended up like being in the hospital for like five days or something. And I remember one day, two of us just sitting next to each other, not talking, just eating our yogurt, watching TV, just feeling absolutely miserable about ourselves because we were like, "What are we doing?" Like. You know, your daughter is like, you know, we didn't see anything. We just like depressively sat there and like looking at the TV and just eating our yogurt. And 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 that was painful, right? But when you get better, you pick yourself again and you try again, right? So it was it was it was bad, right? But it gets better. Then it gets bad. Then it gets better. That's just life. And now what is it like to be you at work? <laughs> What's your typical day like? Now it's interesting because I, I we're so big, so we're like forties. Spirit's high, morale is high. I have second, I can, I have second in command. So it's all it pales right in comparison to before. But we have different challenges, uh, different kinds of pressure. Now my days are highly regimented, so learned to be less distracted. So wake up early. Settle the body energizing stuff, like you know, go for your exercise, take care of your 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 machine. Uh show up at the office. I'm usually one of the earliest in the office and the latest to leave. But very focused, right? So like you 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 end up conditioning your delivery to be focused enough to again least resources, most output. So over time you learn how to uh, manage that 
I think you'll manage the the momentum. And then what is your life like outside of work? Because um, you also have two daughters. What do you like to do with them? Do they have aspirations to be like you? Oh, I or hope do you not. try to keep them away from entrepreneurship? <laughs> uh, my goal is to keep my kids as blissfully happy in their childhood as long as possible. That's like my goal. I do spend a lot of time with them on the weekends and I try to engage them as much as possible with whatever mental capacity I have left for that. But usually very fun, hopefully. I mean, we try to be as fun as possible and and very sort of like uh, less, no tiger mom, <laughs> no energy to be tiger mom, but very, yeah. So I think because what we do is very hard on a daily basis, me and my husband, I think, we we almost feel like we don't want to break that innocence, right? That, that sort of carefree and um, ability to stare into space and not having to worry about time and the next appointment. I mean, you just really want them to to do that as long as possible. And, and fortunately, they have not hit teenage or, 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 or early adulthood. And that's when it gets painful, right? Because you, you have to realize that life gets really intense and, and things like that. So I think, uh, yeah, as much as possible for my daughters, and my older daughter's into BTS. Yeah, I laugh at her about it, but I think secretly I feel like I'm envious that she is in that phase of carefree. I, I think about seven boys that looks exactly the same to me. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, they, they, oh, sorry. Who if, don't even I, speak your language. Don't even speak your language. Maybe one of them speak my language, but yeah, maybe. You know, like that's my daughter used to lecture me about each of them. But it's it's uh it's happiness, right? And it's happiness that is so simple. And you, you just really want them to be in that space um and bask in that as long as possible. I don't know. That's me selfishly thinking. Because you know how hard it can get. You're happy that they can, you know, like different things, you know, without worrying about anything else without repercussions and maybe be obsessed with them to whatever degree yeah, um, they can. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think as an entrepreneur, I'm definitely very privileged and very happy with my achievements and whatever I do on a daily basis. Right? I'm, ha- I'm, ha- I'm happy, right? But it's a different kind of happy because this, this happiness requires you to work for it. Right? You need to work at it. You need to be disciplined about it. You need to do all these things, right? In order to 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 get that to get that 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 milestone right but for them it's like they wake up in the morning and they like stare into space and like ah ha 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 and that one day right that's a different kind of happiness outside of work what gives you happiness like outside of your work outside of being a mom are there other hobbies that you have yeah 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 bring you anything um, close to that <laughs> uh well i think uh Interestingly, uh, somebody asked me that very recently, and I think we I try I try to make some me time, right? And um, I took up the cello about two years ago, to before just before COVID, or maybe three years ago, just before COVID, I always wanted to to take up the cello, and I decided to buy one and and, and do it. It's a form of meditation for me to just get the mind to think about something other than work. And other than my kids, and other than my husband, and other than all the other errands that you run, right? <laughs> like human responsibilities. Uh, so the music is 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 a big part. Like just doing things with your hands is helpful. Like to to condition the mind. So I like that. I like like generally very weird things. I like to buy nonsense like art, distracting things. Uh, but as an entrepreneur, somehow you have to also be very disciplined about how much of these distractions is uh, part of your daily life because time is scarce, but you do have to make space for them to clear the head sometimes. Yeah. And another thing I was wondering, I think a lot of the clients that you have are really big um, corporations or just really big entities. What is it like trying to acquire those kinds of clients? Was it really hard in the beginning or was it after you find one, it's way, 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 way smoother? Or was it still hard until it's like still hard. 10? <laughs> it's still hard. I mean, of course, it's easier now. I won't lie. I mean, like we we do, we are known, right? So property developers, for example, we are now, you know, staple in most of the mm. developers. And so 
a lot of it is word of mouth. Our integrity is a very big part of the, is very uh, strongly associated to our brand. And because integrity is such, it took years to build because you have to also reject certain clients and not reject money, basically. You know, take your money and, and please, you know, keep it. Uh, and that kind of sort of behavior builds the asset of integrity and trust and, and brand confidence. And that built us the banks who who then says, yeah, this is a truly highly independent data company that's not going to do hanky-panky stuff. And so that kind of trust is just like how banks build trust over years, how governments or individuals, right? It, you, you take years, right? So uh, with us, I think we relatively did it very quickly because we were so disciplined about it. Yeah, so the big corporates came with time and it is exponential, like, when you have sufficient a number of people in the community that trust you and your work, it, it becomes easier. Around how many clients did it take to see things noticeably get smoother? The first, like the first stage of it getting noticed. I would say smoother. like 20. 20. I think the the biggest problem is our clients are not educated sufficiently to use data, right? So not, not that they're not educated, they're educated people. But it's just that the 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 skills of using data is is foreign, right? Mm. And so there is an education part to it where you have to get them comfortable with data. What does the data say? And and, and just familiar enough with the material, right? So that takes some time. Then on top of that, it needs to reflect their reality. So you can't be wrong. The challenge in our industry is that. A lot of people can just dump data. Oh, this data is up to you to interpret, or you know, I don't. I'm not responsible for what you do with it, or I'm not responsible for the cleanliness and how you analyze it, and whatever, whatever, right? Yeah, you can say all those things, but if the customer don't believe in your data or don't think it is accurate or have no value, why would they pay you? They pay you to add value to their organization. If you're not adding any value, then you might as well not spend the time to learn your tool, to learn the data, right? Because it's, 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 it's a steep learning curve. So accuracy is important. It's not just speed. And I was wondering, with the kind of work that you do, I think you mentioned on another podcast that you want to build better cities. Mm-hmm. Do you have like a personal goal in your mind? I know that there's no clear end goal of when you will be happy but is there like a vision you have that might make you at least a little bit more fulfilled like what's maybe the minimum or the farthest most ambitious goal that you have either the minimum goal or the most ambitious goal feel free to answer whichever uh i think there are two goals like for the company one is more internal and one's external right so in actual fact we have reached one or one or two one of things that i thought was impossible to to actually we want it to be stable. That means that without the data, they cannot, like decision makers, are uncomfortable with moving forward. That means I feel insecure when I don't have the information to actually verify my gut feel or verify my decision making. We are there. So we know of clients who they need us. Like we have to rush out the report or decision, like the meeting cannot start. You know, like it's it's uh it's very fulfilling because you feel like we've we've made a positive change. They they now they now know how to use the data for their benefit, like for their value creation. So we create something that added value. So that was very fulfilling. Going forward, definitely we want to move faster. We want the value that we bring to society to go more viral. Right now, it's quite limited to key decision stakeholders, which is great. You know, it makes the big, biggest impact. But I have better, I have more hope, right? Like in mobilizing, I want like to mobilize the the power of the consumer uh, a little bit more. And I think that's one of my other pet peeves. I, I have not been able to crack the consumer barrier. And I think I, I, I want to try again. Um, The one that I think is, closer and easier or not easier but one that's even more important to me is my team so my team highly intelligent iq uh wise i would like to see them become leaders and i think training leaders is not as easy as people think and i think that's that's part of the arsenal right like you 
you can't be a general of foot soldiers. You, you can't, right? So that's part of my growth personally also to, to be a leader of leaders instead of just leaders, 10,000 foot soldiers, right? I, I, I don't want to be that. So part of my own personal journey and also the journey of my team is to get them to be better leaders. So yeah, so th- those are the immediate things that I think would really make me happier. And I think to close the podcast, I'll ask you the question I ask everybody who comes onto this podcast. And that is outside of work. So very strictly outside of work, outside of anything career related, um, or well, outside of urban metry, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? Now or like? The timeline is as far as you want or as close as you want. I think for me is personally, I would like to at some point uh, go back to school. So I would like to, I mean, the, the dream is really like you have the luxury to do a PhD and no worries of bills to pay. <laughs> do a PhD, <laughs> sit in a library, uh, you stare into space, you think about things. Um, I think it's a luxury and uh, it would be really nice <laughs> to do at some point, not to become a professor or not to get a doctorate. None of those things, right? It's just like pure uh blissful studying learning opportunity would be would be really nice what would the phd be in no idea <laughs> but <laughs> i have many interests right maybe i'll try physics again and see if i'm suddenly a genius no probably not um maybe something on psychology or something around you know my maybe I can contribute around the power politics in um, urban planning right and how that affects the human ecosystem like stuff like that that, that I, I like to read up about other people's minds like just just the, just that freedom to to dive deep into their psyche and their their point of view right so it's a huge luxury it's a privilege right like that rich people can do you know if you think about it a hundred years ago, only rich people can go to the university, right? Because they don't have to worry about putting food on the table. And I think that's 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 some sort of bliss. Now. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. I think I felt like this is a super interesting conversation because of all the sort of directions that it took. I'm a bit of a scatterbrain, so hopefully it wasn't too rough of a ride. I think that the way that it was sort of well, the way it panned out, I think makes it more interesting. 